Welcome to the third episode of the Out of the Shadows podcast. In this episode, we talk to Michael Poznanski. Michael is Assistant Professor of International Affairs and Intelligence Studies in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs of the University of Pittsburgh. We recorded this podcast via Skype, as Michael was in the United States. In this podcast, we talk about Michael research, and in particular, we focus on democracy and covert action. We discuss whether democracies are more peaceful than other countries and why and to what extent they engage in covert action. We also explore U.S. foreign policy and various historical episodes of covert action from the Bay of Pigs to the U.S. actions in Iran, Guatemala, and especially Chile. We conclude the podcast by discussing current practices of covert action, the evolution of post-9-11 U.S. foreign policy, and what the Trump administration might be up to in the realm of covert action. Michael, as usual, also suggests three books that our listeners might be interested in reading on the topic of democracy and covert action. Michael, thank you for joining us on this Out of the Shadows podcast. This is our third episode and it's our first transatlantic episode, if we can call it that way. You are in the States and I'm still here in the UK. And I thought we could start with an introduction to your research. What is that you are researching? How is your research related to what we do here at Out of the Shadows at Covert Action and so on? Yes, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, so to begin, my research primarily centers on the causes of covert action in world politics. So that includes why leaders pursue covert action, particularly in the realm of regime change, what the implications of those decisions are. And recent research has focused on the role of secrecy in uh, cyberspace and cyber operations. And so that's obviously has uh, really nice affinities with your very exciting project out of the shadows uh, in terms of understanding the dynamics of a really difficult uh, topic to understand for obvious reasons, including perennial secrecy. Uh huh. Um, you seem to have done a lot of research and a lot of work on, in particular, how democracies engage in covert action, under what conditions they engage in covert action, and so on. And this, in a sense, tends to challenge the, shall we call it, liberal argument that democracies are inherently more peaceful than other forms of government. How do you reconcile this idea we have of democracies with democracies engaging in covert action quite frequently? Yes, so let me begin with a little bit of background on the democratic peace, if that's all right. Absolutely, uh, yes. Yeah. Seg- segue into the covert action components. And the democratic peace began as an empirical observation. And that was a bunch of IR scholars, international relations scholars, had noticed that democracies had not fought any large-scale wars with one another. And after the empirical observation, scholars began to seek out explanations to try and explain or better understand the absence of wars between democracies. Happy to talk more about those mechanisms, but that's the general thrust of it. Uh And Critics of democratic peace theory would often point to covert interventions between democracies, primarily initiated by the United States, but also the UK uh, during the Cold War, wherein the United States and the UK, for example, 
covertly intervened in Iran in 1953 to oust the democratically elected leader uh, Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, the U.S. intervenes again in 1954 against a democratically elected leader Yacoubo Arbenz mm-hmm. in Guatemala. Yeah. And, and most prominently, you had a covert intervention in Chile in 1973, uh, beginning in 1970, actually, against Salvador Allende, who was also democratically elected president uh, there. So these covert interventions between democracies posed or seemed to pose a challenge to uh, the democratic peace theory. And one of my articles sought to better understand whether or not these interventions were, in fact, compatible or incompatible with democratic peace. Uh Because, I mean, if we can step back for a second on democratic peace, I think it is my impression that the theory, in a sense, evolved. Initially, it was democracies are more peaceful in general, but then the theory evolved towards a more refined version of democracies are less likely to go to war against one another. But then again, it depends very much on how we define democracy and how we define war. Yeah, so you've hit on something really important. The first is whether or not democratic peace is monadic or dyadic. So what does that mean exactly? Monadic arguments essentially mean, as you put it, democracies are more peaceful in general. Uh Generally, that theory has not received a lot of empirical support in so far as democracies seem to fight lots of wars Mm -hmm. at similar rates to non-democracies or dictatorships, to use shorthand. So not a lot of support for the monadic argument. The dyadic argument, so dyads or pairs, essentially implies that it's not democratic peace theory as democracies being more peaceful on their own, but it's that democracies are more peaceful with one another. Now, why might that be? There's kind of two broad sets of explanations. Let's call them rational and sociocultural. The rational explanations say democracies have a really hard time mobilizing for war because you need approval from the legislature, you need to mobilize public opinion. And when two democracies get into a conflict with one another, this slow mobilization process should enable them to actually find bargains or engage in diplomatic solutions short of war. Before conflict starts, in a sense. Bingo, exactly. Uh-huh. So if this, this would not hold if uh, you were talking about a dictatorship who doesn't need public opinion and can perhaps mobilize for war much more rapidly. Uh-huh. And democracies expecting this might be more inclined to go uh, and escalate to conflict. So I mean, policymakers might, might also fear not getting reelected, in a sense, if the war goes badly or... Yeah, so this is actually another set of rational explanations, which is that in democracies, you're unable to provide, let's call them private goods, uh, to your uh, patrons in order to remain in power. Why is that? Because you can't essentially pay off every member of the electorate. Uh So the way leaders stay in power is by providing public goods. So things like national security or on the non-security side, clean air, things like that, infrastructure. And so if democracies end up in a conflict and leaders would like to remain in power, they marshal lots of resources to fight those conflicts because if they lose, they're likely to be booted from power because they're not offering these public goods in terms of national security. And so when two democracies are, again, on the brink of a conflict, both knows that the other will mobilize lots of resources and it will be a costly fight. And so they'll essentially look to avoid war. So that's another explanation on the rational side for democratic peace theory. Uh-huh. And 
There is also perhaps what you mentioned, sociocultural, that implies sort of values that democracies have and share. Yeah, exactly. So the most prominent sociocultural mechanism goes something like this. In a democracy, think domestically now at home, when leaders lose power, or so when they lose an election, they step down peacefully, right? Mm -hmm. They don't essentially initiate revolutions and things like that and engage in violent conflict. There's peaceful transitions of power. And we adjudicate conflicts we have domestically in courts and things like that. So the logic goes that when democracies are interacting with one another, they externalize these norms of peaceful dispute resolution and therefore are better able or more likely to resolve conflicts short of war because they're essentially externalizing what they're doing domestically, which is peaceful dispute resolution with one another. But it's important again to note that these norms of peaceful dispute resolution do not exist in dictatorships. And so should a democracy engage or become on the brink of conflict with a dictatorship, uh, they would be unlikely to externalize these norms because the other side doesn't enjoy those same processes. And so therefore, you're more likely to get conflict. And finally, the more recent take on the sociocultural mechanisms essentially argues that when leaders of any state, so democratic uh, leaders or dictators want to initiate conflict, they need to what's called securitize an issue. So persuade yeah. their publics yeah. or their particular audiences that another state or a particular leader represents an existential threat to their country. Uh-huh. And the, lo- the logic here goes that democratic leaders should be much less likely and much less able to persuade a democratic audience, so think an electorate or something like that, that another democracy represents an existential threat to the nation. And if they can't do that, they can't generate the support necessary to engage in hostilities, and therefore you get a dyadic democratic peace. Uh-huh. Is there an idea here that the democratic audience should also be better informed, perhaps? That's an interesting question. So certainly a free press, uh, which would imply a better informed public, should certainly play a role here. And you could think about this in the securitization logic. Mm-hmm. So if leaders are less able to manipulate the press and therefore the information publics are getting and you have an oppositional uh, party in power, it should be much harder for democratic leaders to dupe their publics into believing things that either opposition parties or the media are calling them out on. Uh-huh. Can we go back just very briefly to this securitization issue? Because in a sense to me, is this gives an understanding that politicians have to successfully convince the public and the rest of the government, say the parliament and the legislative, that some external threat is an existential threat to their security. And so this, in a sense, makes it perhaps somewhat unlikely that another democracy can be successfully portrayed as an existential threat. Is this the nature of the argument? exactly right. It's essentially that if leaders want to engage in conflict with, say, another state, could be democratic or autocratic, uh, in a democracy, you would first need to persuade your public that the target of uh, the conflict in this case, uh, whether, again, that be a democratic or an autocratic state, represents a threat. Why is that? Because 
democratic leaders need the support of publics in order to initiate or launch large-scale wars. Now, you could reasonably come back and say lots of conflicts throughout history, even in democracies, uh, didn't necessarily or seem to require uh, large-scale public mobilization. So Ronald Reagan intervenes in Grenada in 1983, a tiny state in the Caribbean, and he doesn't actually go to Congress beforehand. And so there are lots of other cases like this, or you could think about the Bush administration in 2003 and the extent to which the Bush administration was successfully able to shape public opinion to support conflict as opposed to public opinion really serving as a constraint. So this is a potential issue uh, with the theory that securitization scholars have certainly thought hard about, but it, it's worth thinking about in this context as well. Yeah, we don't necessarily need to assume that public opinion is more peaceful than the politicians. At times, public opinion might prove perhaps more aggressive than the politicians in power. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, though in the securitization logic, it would imply that you are not likely to see a belligerent public yeah. when the target of their ire is a democracy, uh -huh. essentially. You, you, you really shouldn't see many of those cases, if any. And th does it make a difference if we're not talking about a well-established democracy, but perhaps a country in transition? Yeah, this is a great question. So this is a nice segue into uh, where I was coming at this problem of covert intervention and democratic peace. So. Scholars have put forward several reasons as to why these covert interventions between democracies, primarily, again, the United States and democracies in the developing world, didn't constitute a violation of democratic peace. One of those reasons was that the countries that were targeted, think Iran, Guatemala, Chile, were not fully consolidated democracies at the time and therefore shouldn't have expected the Pacific relations that we normally see between democracies. So that was one, one explanation. And that kind of works for Iran and Guatemala, which were immature democracies at the time of these interventions in 1953 and 54, mm -hmm. respectively. It works much less well with Chile, yeah. which at the time of intervention in the early 1970s had been a consolidated democracy, democracy for something like 40 years yeah. or so. And so that explanation wasn't necessarily sufficient. So where I came at this problem was to not look at the status of democracies in the present. So was Chile a democracy when the U.S. intervened in 1970? Uh, surely they were. And they were recognized as such by Henry Kissinger and other senior officials in the Nixon administration. What I was arguing is that leaders don't think about democracy or dictatorship or the regime type of any target state just in terms of what it looks like today. Uh -huh. Leaders are thinking more dynamically. In other words, what is this country going to look like in three months or a year or five years from now? And the basic logic I was defending is that if leaders believe the democracy in question is likely to transition away from democracy towards dictatorship, which I call democratic decay, uh -huh. which was a term, term borrowed in some ways from the comparative politics literature, yeah. that the normal restraints of democratic peace, which we've just been talking about, no longer operate. And the country in question is effectively treated as though it were a dictatorship in the present. So even if it's a democracy today, if I expect that the regime will transition away or is in democratic decay, then you're more likely to see interventions between a democracy 
in terms of the intervening state against a democracy in terms of the target state. So in a sense, we're, your argument suggests that policymakers look at expectations for the future. Is Precisely. The, so, uh-huh. so, for example, in, in Chile, the argument I'm making, and this is not without controversy, uh, is that senior officials in the Nixon administration believed that Salvador Allende and the Allende regime was essentially on a slow path uh, towards dictatorship. Now, whether or not those perceptions were legitimate or they were hypersensitive to anti-communism and any leader uh, who came to power espousing leftist ideals would have been viewed in this Uh way is a a totally valid question. But the purpose of the study was to look at perceptions and how those perceptions of democratic decay and transitions away from democracy affected decision-making. It's a really interesting and important question to think about whether or not those perceptions were valid based on the evidence at the time, but that was essentially not the core thrust of the project. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, my one of the points you make in the article, if I'm not mistaken, is that the future of democracy was, to an extent, more important, more important than anti-communism. And this, to an extent, is leaves the argument open to the quite, perhaps, natural criticism. Then why did the United States stop being concerned with democracy when it established authoritarian dictators in those countries? Yeah, okay, so this is a great question. It's effectively, what I argue in the article is that leaders, in the United States at least, effectively equated, rightly or wrongly, communism during the Cold War with dictatorship. The two were perceived uh-huh. to go hand in hand. So, for example... Decision makers believe that when Allende, who was a self-espoused Marxist, although also a small d Democrat uh, in his rhetoric, was essentially being disingenuous about that latter commitment, Uh right? Officials in the Nixon administration thought that communism was incompatible with democracy, and Allende took steps uh, to refashion Chilean institutions closer to uh, communist society, even though at Uh, he was still espousing a commitment to elections and democracy. So just to give you one example of this, uh, he proposed, or officials within his administration proposed changing uh, the legislature to a unicameral one-party system, as opposed to the kind of bicameral uh, system Uh they currently had at the time, uh, which would essentially centralize power and make it easier for the executive to enact certain policies uh, and things like this. So The argument in the article is it's really hard, especially during the Cold War, to separate out communism and democracy because leaders in the West and particularly the United States viewed these things as so uh, inextricably intertwined. Yeah, a term you used I found really interesting because you suggested that Allende was disingenuous. And in my own research, I found very often that U.S. policymakers are not really convinced that foreign leaders are communists. Very often they are convinced that they are too weak or too naive and that they will probably be outplayed by local communists. Yeah, this is another great point. In the case of Chile, based on the research I've done, I think Nixon administration officials, including Nixon himself, believe that either one of two things. 
Allende himself was essentially a dictator in Democrats' clothing, if you want to think about it that way. Uh-huh. Or at the, ver- at the very least, he would be unable to contain the more authoritarian leaning uh, communist-affiliated members of his administration, many of whom were in very senior positions. Uh-huh. Now, the more interesting case, perhaps, is Iran in 1953 with Mohammad Mossadegh, and that is U.S. officials in the Eisenhower administration and Truman before that didn't really believe that Mossadegh himself was essentially a budding autocrat yeah. and that he was going to take Iran down the path of dictatorship. So that's not what Eisenhower administration officials were really thinking. What they were concerned about was that the Tuta Party, which was essentially the small uh, but authoritarian-leaning communist party in Iran, which had recently been legalized under Mossadegh at the time, uh, would essentially co-opt uh, the levers of government, seize power, move Iran into the Soviet camp, and turn Iran into a dictatorship. And again, whether or not those concerns were valid is a very legitimate question. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes, officials are thinking about these, you know, in terms of expectations and probabilities. And uh, so that, in, in the case of Iran, was what they were basing their decision to intervene on. What does your research tell you about the power of the president in these covert actions? Because we, we move from the era of plausible deniability to an era of more clear presidential involvement. What is your impression of the power of the president to make these decisions? And are, is it the president's expectations that count, or is it people around the president? So in terms of accountability, and let me just speak specifically to the U.S., which is the, the country I, I know best in this regard. There was an era from the time the Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA, was created in 1947 through the mid-1970s in which executives essentially enjoyed unfettered capacity to conduct covert operations. There were few congressional checks on a president's ability uh, to authorize covert operations. Many senators in the U.S. Congress uh, didn't want to know about covert operations. There's some really great quotes on this uh, about senator saying, no, no, don't tell me, just go ahead and do it. Yeah. And this changes in the mid-1970s in the wake of the Watergate scandal with the Nixon administration and a bunch of high-profile New York Times stories outlining covert operations, including uh, intervention in Chile, which we've yeah. just been talking about, as well as CIA and, and FBI abuses uh, domestically within the United States. And so starting in the 1970s, U.S. presidents, when they wanted to authorize a covert operation, had to sign what's called a finding. Yes. And that, assen- that essentially means that U.S. presidents had to go to uh, the House and Senate intelligence committees and present them with a document that said, we have found that this particular covert operation would serve the U.S. national interest. And to your point, this eliminated one form of plausible deniability, or it was intended to at least, where presidents could no longer claim that lower-level subordinates were just carrying out these covert operations and they didn't know anything about it. Now, in practice, it's been a bit more complicated than that because as, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, we had the Iran-Contra scandal in the 1980s, yeah. which was, to, to oversimplify a very complex case, the Reagan administration was funding the Contra forces in Nicaragua uh, with money that was gleaned from a hostage negotiation uh, in 
between Iran, Lebanon, Hezbollah, very complicated, uh, and arms transfers to Iran. Yeah. Uh, and so they were diverting these funds. Now, there's been serious questions about whether or not Reagan knew about this. And note that this is after the 1970s reforms. So you might be wondering, how is it possible that there was any plausible deniability for the president? And the short answer is that in order to make this program work, officials in the Reagan administration went around normal legal channels, including outside of the CIA, and pursued this program through the National Security Council, which is a bit unusual for these types of operations. So what's the moral of the story here? If presidents want to circumvent these legal uh, institutions in place to constrain and ensure accountability, they probably can, although it comes at quite a high cost. Uh And so... I think the accountability institutions that are in place since the 70s and have certainly been strengthened since then, including in the early 90s, um, you know, presidents can still go around these things when they want, but I think all else equal, uh, the costs associated with getting caught going around them, uh, which can include things like impeachment and maybe even jail time, might disincentivize most of uh, the egregious abuses that would otherwise potentially occur. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And I think we're moving also closer to your more recent work. And I think there has been a sort of effort of legalization of covert action. So establishing both domestic procedures and making an effort on the part of the United States to try and convince international audiences that its foreign policies are in line with international law and so on. And this, to a large extent, contrasts with the need for secrecy that these operations are characterized by. Yeah, that's exactly right. At the domestic level, in terms of legalization for covert action, you could think about that exactly as you put it. Are there institutions in place wherein the executive has to go through certain channels and meet certain criteria to authorize covert operations? And this is true of overt operations as well. But covert operations are particularly tricky because, you know, they're not subject to public debate. Often these documents can be classified for decades uh, or longer. And so the the legal architecture in place within the United States, for example, has gotten much better uh, since the mid-70s. You hit on another point, which is the book project I'm working on, which has to do less with domestic law and more to do with international law. And here things are a bit more complicated. So the thrust of my book is that changes to the international laws governing the use of force uh, which occurred in the mid-20th century. I'm referring here to the to the creation of the UN uh-huh. and the codification of the UN Charter, which essentially outlawed intervention in uh, other states, except in very rare circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the argument I'm making in the book is that this had a profound impact on how political leaders pursued intervention and specifically regime change. So whereas prior to the mid-20th century, you could intervene in violation of an informal non-intervention principle, there were no real legal or normative ramifications for doing so. And just anecdotally, you saw lots of U.S. interventions in Latin America in the early 20th century, something like over 35 between 1898 and the mid-20th century. Afterwards, in order to persuade America's allies and states in Latin America uh, within the U.S. sphere of influence, it became a lot harder to do so except uh, in cases where you had a credible self-defense claim or could argue that you were protecting U.S. nationals 
or with Security Council or another regional body's authorization. And when you were unable to do that, you saw U.S. presidents turning to covert action, even when they knew it was more likely to fail, uh, in order to avoid open and brazen violations of international law. So here we're talking less about international laws governing covert action, which would probably be impossible to coordinate and and even codify, and more just how international laws governing the use of force may be actually increased the frequency of covert action while at the same time decreasing the prevalence of overt action. So it's a bit of a mixed bag for whether international law works. We know that it hasn't prevented states from intervening, including the U.S., uh, when it suits its interests, but it's certainly affected how the United States has intervened. And in some cases, the U.S. was willing to accept a higher probability of failure if it meant avoiding an open violation of international law, which, again, is a kind of partial uh, win if you're thinking about the efficacy of international law. Yeah, I think I think that's a this is a very important point, and there is a lot of debate within the international relations literature at the moment as to whether international law regarding the use of force is actually constraining or permissive, because some people argue that this self-defense justification has been expanded, exploited, and so on, and so. Here it seems that you are making a different argument that precisely because there are some norms regarding the open use of force, this has created incentives for the United States to rely on covert action. Yeah, that's exactly right. Although it's important to note as well, and uh, you brought up this point, in, in my argument, leaders are not able to just simply invent uh, self-defense justifications uh-huh. or some sort, of, some sort of pretext whenever they'd like. The reason they can't do that, according to my argument, is that in order to reduce the costs associated with violating an international legal agreement, like the UN Charter or something, other states and allies need to actually believe the claims you're making. Yeah. So if you just want to make flimsy claims uh, that are just essentially facially implausible uh, and you just want to invent pretexts and they're likely to be unpersuasive, it raises the natural question of why even appeal to these justifications in the first place if nobody believes them. (laughs) And so if the goal is to actually have states that are friendly to you and possibly others uh, be persuaded by them, you actually have to ensure that they're credible, which does act as a, as a real constraint on leaders' capacity to just invent justifications for intervention whenever they like. Uh-huh. In my work, I've been arguing as well that the Obama administration, for example, had been exploiting the concept of, the concept of imminence and self-defense, manipulating the concept to actually be able to expand its targeted killing program and this has been fairly successful in terms of convincing other countries. Several other countries now seem to have adopted the US position on imminence, for example, like the UK. Yeah, this is precisely why, for example, the Bush administration in 2003, uh, as people will probably recall, did not use the language of preventive action against yeah. Iraq and yeah. Saddam Hussein. They used the language of preemption, even though it was a preventive war. There was no imminent threat from Iraq to use uh, WMD or nuclear weapons, which they didn't end up having. And they used the language of preemption precisely because that is a legal justification for the use of force under international law. So to your point, uh, the Obama administration, uh, it, to the extent that they were trying to encompass certain activities under the logic of preemption, the reason one might do that is is exactly to uh, 
uh, be able to intervene and pursue these policies in a way that's internationally uh, viable from a legal perspective. Yeah. I mean, we're moving towards the end of the podcast, but I just wanted to get your views about what is the, the role of covert action today, perhaps, in the United States, and if you have any sense of it, perhaps under the Trump administration. Yeah, there's two big things I'd say about this, about covert action in the modern era. One is, uh, in a piece I have uh, that just came out with the co-author Michael Joseph uh, in the Journal of Peace Research, we make the case that the rise of media technology, if you could think about here, shorthand would be cell phones and other forms of communication technology, have made it easier than ever for citizens and others in particular target states, if you want to think about it that way, prospective targets of intervention, to collect evidence and publicize it to the world in the event that foreign meddling was was going on. And leaders who are thinking rationally about these issues might be more reluctant than ever to pursue kind of Cold War-style covert operations Uh for fear of getting caught. And just as a quick anecdote, uh, you had during Russian intervention in Ukraine, in which Vladimir Putin was denying that Russian soldiers were in eastern Ukraine, you had a Russian soldier essentially post a selfie of himself in eastern Ukraine that geolocated him. So it's not just people yeah. collecting evidence, but also you can I think there was a, a similar case on Twitter yesterday with someone pretending to be an anti, a pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit account, and they had forgotten to remove the location service from Twitter. So he came up as somewhere in Russia. Yeah, pr- precisely, right? So this is, uh, and just doesn't relate to co- covert action in terms of regime change, but even in terms of propaganda, yeah. right, which is a really important aspect of covert operations. So that, that's exactly right. So the thing is, it might be harder than ever, although we do know that the Obama administration for a while pursued covert intervention in Syria to support the rebels there at program that the Trump administration ended. So it's a little too soon to tell whether or not the Trump administration uh, is interested in covert action or what they're pursuing at the moment. There were kind of anecdotal stories in the news about the possibility of covert intervention in Iran or in North Korea against uh, missile tests and things like that. But at present, it's just a bit too soon to tell where the administration is going. So big takeaway one is these things are really hard in the modern era when you have really advanced media technology, but they are not impossible, and they've occurred before uh, in Syria and elsewhere. The second big takeaway is that we have lots of new tools that we didn't have, say, during the Cold War for states to compete in the covert sphere. And here Uh I'm thinking primarily about uh, the cyber domain. And this is not to say that all cyber attacks will be covert. In fact, a piece I'm working on uh, with a colleague at the University of Connecticut, Evan Perkoski, argues that States and non-state actors actually use cyber capabilities quite often uh, to achieve things like coercive objectives, so trying to get somebody to do something uh-huh. that they're not that they're not already doing, and that to be effective cannot be covert. You have to make your identity known. So it's not to say all cyber operations will be covert, but it is certainly true, as many have written, that there are unprecedented opportunities to do covert type types of activities in the cyber domain. So we have new tools in which states and even non-state actors, including criminals, but also those with political motivations, are competing uh, in this covert sphere without betraying their identity. And there really aren't good international or domestic norms governing 
these types of covert operations in the same way there are for, say, more standard classic covert operations. So this will be a really interesting area to watch is these these new tools, particularly cyber domain and how various actors are competing there. Yes, because it seems to be a new realm in which you can have both states, non-state actors and what used to be called the proxies, which seem to be doing quite a lot of work for state actors, both on the ground and via cyber, I think. Exactly. And the reason I didn't mention, say, special forces or private military contractors, which is another really interesting and, and gray area, no pun intended for those who are familiar with propaganda, but um, the reason I didn't mention those is those are certainly relevant to the modern era, the war on terror, and relates to some of the work you're doing on uh, targeted killings. But it's not really a new domain. It could just be a new way of using uh, individuals and, and so forth. But the cyber domain really is new in a lot of ways. There aren't good rules governing it. So it'll be really interesting to watch. The Trump administration also seems to be fairly fascinated with these private companies, especially with Eric Prince, who seemed to come back to the center stage after his misguided adventures in the early 2000s. Yeah, this this was uh, the report that Eric Prince was trying to sell the Trump administration on a private intelligence outfit. Yeah, uh, was circul was circulating some weeks ago. I'm I'm skeptical, uh, although I I tend to be an optimist that this program would never get off the ground and, and be approved. And I'm fairly certain it would be illegal within the United States to do something like that. Which doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but it does mean that the costs of doing something like that and then possibly getting caught or even being associated with it are pretty high. So I, I'm fairly certain. Uh, it's possible that Eric Prince raised it uh, and that some officials were interested in it. I, I don't know that for sure, but I suspect it probably won't uh, get much uh, traction within the administration. It was quite ironic that the other person involved apparently was Oliver North of Iran-Contra fame, the episode we have discussed earlier on in the podcast. Yes, that irony was not lost on me either. And, you know, it's interesting. Oliver North, of course, uh, was the NSC staffer. Uh, responsible for the, the famous diversion between arms sales to Iran going to the Contras that essentially uh, got him in a lot of legal trouble. So yeah, it was interesting that he was involved in that. Well, Michael, we got to the end of the podcast. And as usual, I'll conclude the podcast with my homage to Ezra Klein and his show asking you what three books you would suggest to our audience if they're interested in either the topics you research or covert action more generally. Yeah, well, so good, good homage to Ezra Klein. Uh, the three books I'd recommend, I think, touch on different aspects of covert action and secrecy and democracy more generally. So let me start first with a book called Democracy Declassified, The Secrecy Dilemma in National Security. This is by Michael Colarisi, who is also a colleague of mine at the University of Pittsburgh in the political science department. And the book is a really fascinating take on what he calls retrospective accountability institutions. This is essentially how democracies can structure institutions to hold leaders accountable when they are pursuing activities like covert action and other um, secret activities where the public does not necessarily observe them. And so you don't get constraints necessarily during authorization of these programs, but you oh. have things like a free press uh -huh. and investigations afterwards that can look backward and hold leaders accountable. And if leaders know that they might be held accountable later, this could affect their decision making uh, at the, the beginning. Operation. And it's a really interesting cross-national study. So that's one book I'd highly recommend that has deep uh, moral and ethical implications of secrecy 
secrecy's role in democratic societies, but also some really rich case work as well as uh, really sophisticated quantitative analysis. It's a really nice blend. The second book I would recommend is called The Bay of Pigs Declassified, The Secret CIA Report on the Invasion of Cuba. This is edited by Peter Kornblue, who works at the National Security Archives. And this book is essentially two big reports. One is after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, so the covert operation to unseat Castro in 1961, the inspector general of the CIA was tasked with writing a report of what went wrong. And it was a scathing report that looked at bureaucratic uh, infighting and inattentiveness and, and all sorts of uh, issues that, that might have contributed to the covert action failure. And the second report is a reply to this scathing analysis by the IG, by this man, Richard Bissell, who was the architect of the Bay of Pigs and worked at the CIA. It was pretty high up. And it's a really fascinating back and forth to see some of the pathologies that can arise in covert action, as well as some responses to those pathologies and whether or not they're even avoidable uh-huh. when you're doing covert action. It's a really great uh, insight into a very important case in the covert action canon, so to speak. And it's built on primary sources as well, so it's good. Bingo, exactly. So actually both the report and Bissell's reply uh, were only declassified, say, in the past 15 years, even though they were written in the mid-60s. So yeah. it's a really great uh, report with some uh, some primary sources. The final book I'd mention uh, is called The World Was Going Our Way, The KGB and the Battle for the Third World. This is written by Christopher Andrew uh, and co-authored essentially with Vasily Matrokin, who was uh, a senior KGB uh, uh, official during the Soviet Union and eventually defected and took lots of his notes uh, with him. And so Christopher Andrew essentially collated these these notes in conjunction with Vasily Matrokin. And it's a really sweeping analysis of KGB interventions throughout uh, what they call the third world or the developing world. Uh, now. And this will give you a take away from, say, the U.S. and U.K. experience and give readers a flavor for what the Soviet Union was doing. And there's some remarkable similarities as well as some really interesting differences. And I'll just note here that the book focuses on Soviet Union, what they call active measures, which was essentially the euphemism given to KGB covert operations, which included lots of propaganda disinformation campaigns, political funding of uh, communist parties and things like that. And this is highly relevant, of course, to today uh, with what Vladimir Putin, say, was doing in the U.S. election, which uh, looks a lot like the active measures of the KGB era. So it's a really rich, uh, really comprehensive take of what the KGB was doing for, say, a 45-year period uh, across the developing world. Well, Michael, thanks a lot for your time and for joining us. Look, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.